Scuba Obsessed, the weekly podcast where we talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear to places to dive and scuba to news. Scuba Obsessed, episode 444, is recorded live April 9th, 2020. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Jilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan where, where we are just before the hump and flattening the curve. Joining me this week, we have Mac, the dive mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? So good so far, and I'd like to stay that way. Yeah. Yeah, before the show, you were telling me all the things you were doing to, to be safe, and that's the way to do it. As well, little contact as possible. Yeah, I do get out and do a little bit of uh, out to the parks to get some fresh air, mm-hmm. drag the wife out there with me so she sees something. But we don't get out the car, and if we do, it's way back over by the dunes, take a short walk and back. Makes a difference, clears, the, uh, you know, clears your head up a little bit. And mm-hmm. it's amazing when we go out how many people are old <laughs> doing the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the good thing is we've been walking. Uh, out here just in the rural area, which we just don't do nearly as much as we should. And I think in the last two weeks, I have walked over three miles, like all but two or three days. So getting a lot of uh, workout and walking. Excellent. Uh, yeah, that, so that's good. Uh, the store, you know, we we do the thing where my wife's the only one going to the store. You know, it's, we don't, we're not all going to the store. You know, we, we do... I'm trying to remember if we did any takeout. I think we've done pizza at the pizza place in town maybe once or twice since this has started. Uh, been tempted to do that, but I never I never feel comfortable with what are the people doing behind the counter that I don't know about. You yeah. Know, you uh, hope they, they're responsible, blah, blah, but, you know, yeah. they need a job. Well, I, I, so, right. And, and the way I, I think of it as the, in the food is it is don't eat anything holding on to their container, you know, treat your container like it's contaminated. Yeah. Uh, so you take the food, you transfer it out, you know, the pizza, presumably it's hot and that they didn't sneeze on it or cough on it as they were putting it in the box. Uh, yeah. So it's, I mean, that, that's a, that's a problem anytime with food. You know, like I, I, yeah. I like, I like burritos and stuff, but I, I'm not ordering any food or some, somebody is, has to prepare it and hold it with their hands and turn it over. It's like, nah, yeah, I want something either deep fried or baked to death is about the, the only option. Cholesterol, the devil, you know, versus the one you don't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm hoping that some of the walking takes care of that. I, I did have a virtual doctor's appointment. That's the first time I've ever had that done. And I don't know if they were fishing for hours because it was just to go over some lab results, which normally he would just wait till my next appointment. So, you know, there was, it wasn't really anything different, but that was, it was 
it kind of worked. I got one of those scheduled with my wife uh, next week. And okay. she's overdue. And some of her issues, I really would like to at least see her and talk to her a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's good because the nice thing is they can tell you if it's something that needs to be looked into a little bit more or, or uh, you know, it can wait. Well, they were really good. I sent a note to them and said I'd like to get uh, advance on the refills for the meds and get in advance of them. So I got plenty of supply because if the mail people get sick, you're not going to get your meds to the mail anymore. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Well, we got quite an active chat room today. We have uh, Karen and Eric and Derek and Dave all in there. So thank you once again for joining us. And we talk all about things on topic and off topic. So Sometimes it's hard to know that this is a, a a show on scuba diving. So hopefully we have something that we can talk about dive related, kind of lighten the stories this week. But first one up is the Coast Guard is warning divers to stay home. And this is from the ITV website, which let's see, what country is this? Do they say? Yeah, as the country comes up, we'll we'll go and cover the article that says the Coast Guard has issued a warning to scuba divers thinking about venturing out in the region over Easter to stay at home. It has stressed that diving for pleasure is not an essential activity and could be put additional strain in emergency services, which are already stretched. Leisure diving is not essential. What diver needs to remember is that if they have a uh, difficult time and the Coast Guard is called, it creates a greater degree of risk for us and for our services. Every 999 call, which should give us indication of where that is, made could put frontline responders in risk of COVID-19. It'd also be avoidable strain on the NHF services at a time it could at least avoid it. I've been told that decompression chambers are currently running at reduced levels during this challenging time. Uh, you might think nothing will go wrong but you're while well, you're out, but there's no guarantees that it won't. And this is according to Pete Mizzen, Assistant Director for HM Coast Guard. So Her Majesty's Coast Guard. I know up here that they consider diving as recreational and is okay. Now, if you're you're doing a solo, you can go for it. Yeah. Kevin did some footwork uh, last week before the show. He contacted me. He said, hey, you think this is a good topic? And I'm like, yeah, sure. So he contacted the DNR and went up the food chain within the Michigan uh, government and got it clarified. And the, the funny thing was, is that uh, the same day we were recording, the head of the uh, Michigan State Police had said that uh, diving and boating was not allowed, and then the governor's office came back and said, no, it is. So we did get it clarified. In Michigan, we are allowed to dive. And boat, as long as it's members of the same family, because last week when we had some flat water, there was a hell of a lot of boaters out there, and I was checking the boat I had an opportunity to go out there and look around a little bit sounded like two people per boat and just looking through my camera and binoculars it's of the same family so they seem to be um, yep. doing what they're supposed to be doing yeah i think the challenge is going to be that uh boat ramps are going to be hard to uh get access to because you're seeing like traverse city had boat ramps uh shut down uh different municipalities have had them shut down and that's both the dnr and not dnr boat ranch i'm being stupid though. go ahead 
some of them are being stupid. Oh, yeah. Just I mean, got, if you know the rules and you just don't do them, well, you're going to get it shut down, which they have done. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we had just here in Benton Harbor, you saw the Lowe's uh, where they ended up uh, closing the garden center. You know, they had a cease and desist order because uh, they said that was not within the uh, boundaries. And then uh, Lowe's actually shut the store down. You can only, uh, uh, do pickups now, but you know, Online. The, one of the fatalities was uh, actually somebody who worked at the uh, Lowe's. So that's kind of the moral of the story: is make sure uh, you do your research, you know, do your social distancing, uh, each uh, geographic location and government and county and state are all going to have different laws. So make sure you understand what those are and. You know, my philosophy has just been to, you know, if I don't need to, let's not do it. I mean, I think if I had my own boat and I had a way of getting it in and I was just going to go out and I could do it, then maybe. But I'm not in that situation, so I don't even have to uh, think about it. Uh, Mr. John had a nice little boat ride last week. Big John. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, he was, uh, yeah, he, he didn't look like he got in the water, but he did catch a fish. And I do have a couple of friends who are avid fishermen. Uh, a lot of them are kayakers, and uh, they've been doing great guns. But again, they always emphasize yeah. they're doing this social distancing for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Being aware and then practicing what you know what they're asking—that's the important item. Yeah. And then here's one. Uh... This is from scubadivermag.com, and this is actually for today. A diver medic has something that everyone in enforced downtime from the COVID-19 pandemic, whether you're new to diving or hardened veteran. First of all, Chantelle Newman, founder of Diver Medic, would like to thank all the frontline medical workers and all central workers dealing with this life-changing virus. She said, you all have been a critical lifeline in time of need. Thank you. The Diver Medic will now be online training and live on-demand webinars to keep everybody updated with dive medicine. Uh, special guests have been announced, including conservationist Christina Zento, cave diving specialist Jill Heiner, underwater photographer Ellen uh, uh, Cure-Lertz, and from the realm of diving medication, Dr. David Shoresh and Dr. Alessandro uh, Marini. And I probably slaughtered half those names. First webinar took place today at 4 p.m. Europe, London time. So, you know, if, if, if you're holed up and looking for something to do, then uh, certainly another way of participating. You're in education. Yeah. And then this article made me think of all the times you found something in the, in the water, Mac. Civil War cannon exploded and killed 140 years after it was fired. Uh, this article is from the 4th, but this event happened quite a while ago. Sam White uh, was a dyed-in-the-wool Civil War fanatic. He was never happier than when he was searching for Civil War relics and restoring those that he had found. Sadly, 12 years ago, February 2008, the hobby cost him his life when a cannonball he was restore, uh, restoring exploded, killing him instantly. Sam, who lived in Chester, a pretty suburb of Richmond in Virginia, would scour the countrysides in his home looking for buttons, bullets, flags, and 
artillery shells that had lain in the earth undisturbed for 140 years. His desire for Civil War artifacts also drove him to don uh, scuba gear and search the rivers for any interesting bits and pieces. Harry Ridgway, a fellow relic hunter, said that there were very few places in the southern state of America that were not battlefields during the Civil War. He shared the thrill of finding relics with Sam and thousands of other Civil War buffs. Back in February 2008, 53-year-old Sam White very sadly lost his life while trying to restore a cannonball. 140 years after it was fired, the explosives contained within the ball were still powerful enough to blast a piece of shrapnel a quarter mile where it landed in the porch of a house. Colonel John F. B. Mech, who retired from the Army Ordnance Corps, said that merely dropping on the ground is not enough to make it explode. White's death sent shocks to the very close-knit community of Civil War relic hunters. It also brought an issue of Civil War munitions and the safety of those munitions to the public sphere. There are tons of this type of explosives littering around the Civil War battlefields, yet explosive experts said that the odds of one of these artillery pieces exploding are extraordinary. In the period from 1861 to 1865, Confederate troops from the southern states and Union forces from the north blasted an estimated 1.5 million artillery pieces at each other, some on land, some in the water. Journals from that period indicate that many as one in five of the fired pieces were duds and did not explode on contact. There are many cannonballs and other artillery shells uh, recovered regularly. In March of this year, a substantial eight-inch mortar shell weighing 44 pounds was retrieved from the site in a 292-day siege of St. Petersburg. The shell was safely detonated. The cannonballs and other artillery shells of this period were filled with a mixture of potassium nitrate, sulfur, charcoal, commonly known as black powder. Black powder does not explode easily. It needs a combination of friction, extremely high temperature, 572 degrees Fahrenheit to detonate. Sam's friends never saw anything that gave him a cause for concern over his work in restoring cannonballs. Sam's family often watched him work on these restorations. It's estimated. Okay. You want the rest of that sentence? <laughs> well, they, the photos loaded and it jumped. Um, uh, dun, 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 dun. Yeah, there's a nice, pretty photo. Okay. Uh, oh, fa- Sam's family often watched him on these restorations and estimated that he had restored around 1,600 shells for collectors. Jimmy Blankenship, the curator and resident historian for St. Petersburg Battlefield, said that Sam knew Civil War munitions very well. As this was an explosive, there there was a full investigation by the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. Police that attended the scene examined the shrapnel and concluded it was an explosion by a Civil War munition that caused his death. White was working in restoration of disarming a 75-pound, 9-inch naval shell. These contained a potent explosive that was many times more destructive than that used in shells used on land along with the complex fuse. There had been speculation about what White was trying to do when he died. Colonel Biamek and Peter George, who co-authored a book on munitions used during the Civil War, suspected that White was using a drill or a grinder to remove debris from the cannonball. The intricate fuse design may have also led to White to incorrectly conclude there's no powder left in the ball. This, in conjunction with a shell of sparks on the drill, could have been enough to cause the cannonball to explode. 
as this was a naval shell, the ball would have been watertight as it was designed to fly over the water at high speeds and strike an enemy ship along the waterline. The protective cover would have ensured that the black powder inside was protected from degradation by the elements. Sam White's widow, Brenda, convinced her husband did nothing wrong and that there was an inherent manufacturing defect in the shell that he could not possibly have known about. She said that he had disarmed the shell before it exploded. Following Sam's death, the neighboring houses were evacuated while experts removed all the artillery pieces from his collection and detonated them for safety. You know, because sometimes you, you see, you know, World War II munitions and other things, and you're kind of like, ah, oh, come on, they've been sitting there in the field for that long. And then they have something from this far back still explode. That is a little scary. Well, like you said, if you start generating heat by drilling to the core and you still got powder, that's an accident yeah. waiting to happen. And And that's, you know, just if you had to hazard a guess. Uh, probably what happened. Yeah, that was, it still had, well, because how much has to be in there? I mean, how how do you say for sure it's it's not there? Uh, Don't have a clue. I'm not familiar with the old time ordinance. Yeah. Well, the one they show in the photo, uh, it looks like somebody's taking some time to, to, you know, polish and grind that up. I mean, sparks is sparks. <laughs> There you go. And then we have one where uh, they're talking about, uh, it says, meet the black scuba divers searching for slave ships unfairly overlooked. Uh, for many people, the disturbing history of slave trade brings to mind a horrifying experience enslaved Africans had to go through while working on the plantations in America and other parts of the world. Africans were for centuries captured and chained down, forced onto ships, and taken to new lands against their will. It is estimated that uh, 12.5 million people were transported from Africa to the Americas with each slave ship carrying up to 600 individuals. Thousands died before getting their new homes due to sickness, the awful experience on the ship and the shipwrecks. According to Naval National Geographic, the estimated 500 to 1,000 ships that may have wrecked, only five have been found. Out of the five, only two, including the Clotilda, have been properly documented. Thanks to Diving with Purpose, DWP, a group of black maritime archaeologists and divers, the stories of these wooden ships underwater are being retrieved and told. DWP is made up of both adults and young people from 16 to 23 years of age who come from different parts of the world, including Mozambique, Costa Rica, Peru, and more. In the group are teachers, artists, engineers, students, civil servants, and among others, basically people who are interested in scuba diving for, for a purpose, that is, discover shipwrecks of various slave ships and document the history of their ancestors. Co-founded by Kenneth Stewart, a regional representative of the National Association of Black Scuba Divers, NABS, and Biscayne Maritime Archaeologist Brenda Lazendorf, the group came into being found to search for the vessel uh, the Guerrero, uh, carrying 561 kidnapped Africans, a Spanish pirate ship reportedly crashed in the Sea of Biscayne National Park off the coast of Florida. Stewart, alongside members of the National Association of Black Scuba Divers, participated in the 2004 documentary about the ship. It was thought the documentary that Stewart met Biscayne Mar uh, maritime archaeologist 
Lesendorf, featured in the documentary, uh, Lesendorf was not only interested in finding the ship, but also looking to identify some 40 wrecks underwater within the uh, Biscayne National Park. Lesendorf was the was then the only diver, so she asked Stewart for help. This eventually led to the creation of DWP, which so far has participated in 18 missions around the world to find submerged artifacts relevant to Africans in the Americas. And this is according to National Geographic. The slave ship and the group most recently helped document the San Jose, was that Parquet de Africa, a ship in Cape Town, South Africa, a few years ago. In 15 years since it was founded, it has trained more than 300 adult and youth divers. Divers go through a week-long training before the discoveries can begin. In field school, all DWP divers learn to measure the wrecked surface, sketch underwater, retrieve artifacts, draw them to scale. They then transfer all information to Master Site Map, which stands as a legal document for site monitoring. Uh, and then the 29-year-old... Alenia Fellenwold, a terrestrial archaeologist who works at DWP, believes that the person of African descendants working on the materially of the transatlantic slave trade, be it on land or sea, is a healing process, allows me to connect with my ancestors, bring the lives of surface to be reckoned with, praised, and honored. Uh, members of the DWP work as partners in the Slave Rex Project, SWP, a collection of organizations hosted by Smithsonian's National Museum of African-American History and Culture. So, I mean, it, it's a it's good to see people getting out there and diving. Um, is, you know, they're maintaining that, you know, there's a thousand slave ships, but people don't care about them. So they've only documented two. Don't think that's true. <laughs> Personally. Well, I, I I think you could make some generalizations which say what gets the most excitement is gonna be treasure ships and pirate ships back because people think they're treasure ships. So you've got that is what's at yeah, you know, that's where people are spending large amounts of money because they think there can be a return on their investment. Then you've got like Ballard who are looking for Titanic, Navy vessels, submarines, which have a different right. value. Right. But in general, um, regular wrecks are, are wrecks. So, you know, I can't speak for down there, but up here, you know, there wasn't a huge uh, or if any slave trading going on uh, the Great Lakes. Uh but every, we'd be looking for any wreck. Uh, so I think that's kind of something similar down south would be is that people would be, at least in the last 30, 40 years, you find a, a ship, that's a ship. And you're looking after, you're going to look for anything, you're looking for the cargo. Yeah. So good to see people getting out there. Uh, this one's from Australia, shipwreck of a. Tasmanian-built schooner Barbara gives archaeologists a new insight into colonial built boat building. Let me put this into the chat room. Uh, the Barbara's uh, whereabouts remained a mystery for almost 170 years until maritime archaeologists this year confirmed the identity of the wreck 
in the area. The 39-year-old wooden ship was built on the Tamar River in Tanzania in 1841 and has been has given archaeologists a new insight into early Australian boat building. Flinders University-based archaeologist Wendy Van Duvenverde said the wreck would help fill a gap in history. It's an interesting shipwreck site because we know very little about Australian-built vessels from the early 19th century prior to 1850. We have very few historic sources that detail Australian shipbuilding, and yet those vessels were so important to the building of Australia. Back in the day, everything was done by ship rather than overland, and we've lost that connection to our past. She said shipbuilding was colonial Australia's first manufacturing industry. The shipwreck was discovered near Rye Pier several years ago by wreck explorer Peter Taylor, who had been researching lime trade in the area. The wreck was 100 meters offshore, and it was not known which of the lime trading vessels had met its fate there. In February, Flinders University Heritage Victoria and Maritime Archaeological Association of Victoria partnered up to undertake the identification exercise involving surveys and underwater photogrammetry. Um, there are two candidates for the wreck, the Barbara and the Opossum. The Opossum was built in 1827 by convicts on Sarah Island, Tasmania West, and sank in 1853. We spent two weeks in Rye, excavate the shipwreck site, take samples, and study construction of the vessel. After two weeks, we came to the conclusion it was the Barbara simply because the Barbara is about 12 meters long, whereas, whereas the opossum was 11. It's still unknown where the opossum lies. Uh, she said early Australian shipyards were not well documented in history and not much is known about the people who built the vessels and their approach. She said the wreck of the Barbara was instrumental in giving archaeologists that information. We always assumed they would use local timbers like uh, hewn pine or blue gum, she said, with this particular ship, we found the planking was made from Jara from Western Australia. The frame was made of tea tree. There was eucalyptus from South Wales and Victoria. Archaeologists will still work with ship historians to find records of repair and maintenance. It shows there's a specific choice of timber for specific parts of the vessel. The shipbuilder was Joseph Hind, a farmer in the Tamara Valley in northern Tasmania, who came from England to Van Diemen's Land in 1828 with his wife, Barbara. Records of shipping movement show Barbara transported livestock and wool up the river before being registered in Victoria in 1846. Australia didn't start building ships until 1820, but Barbara, one of Australia's earliest boats, the vessel's incredibly well-constructed, had a very deep draft. It was something we usually see in whaling ships, a construction Busted a myth about early shipbuilding, she said. In the past, it was assumed Australian-built vessels would be quite flimsy and poor quality, but this shows the ship was not the case at all. Barbara was one of several lime-trading ships to be lost in the Mornington Peninsula. If they ran onto the shore, it's very difficult to refloat them because they have a very deep keel. I mean, 1820, that's a boat that's been in the water that long. It's pretty well, impressive. It makes you wonder if you are Doesn't it? It's mm -hmm. like, why is that suddenly important since it's shallow? People knew about it for dozens upon dozens of years and officially recovered or found by a diver, you know, 
just a couple of years ago. Something that shallow, that big that you can see this well m- leads me to believe that that's been known about for a long time. So why the sudden interest? Doesn't really say that, does it? It doesn't say, but I have to think it's because somebody who that's what they do wanted to look at it. Because I'm, you know, I'm looking at the pictures underwater and what have you. It's like very shallow, meaning at some point there was a lot more there than there is now. Why the sudden interest mm-hmm. to spend the money to go do this? Yeah, I agree. I mean, you look at that that photo there, and you know, every pilot since the '40s has known that that ship was there. And looking at the bottom features, if you're going to find any fish or any wildlife, you're going to find them around that because you got shelter. Looking at the pictorials, that's about the only place that you don't have sand on the bottom. That's where you've got wood structures coming out, and you've given it a foothold for something to attach to. Yeah, yeah. You know the fishermen had to like that spot. Always curious, though, is how you suddenly get the money for something like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, let me go back. Let's say the Max wreck. It's basically a sand wreck. Mm-hmm. That, shore, that close to shore, people knew where it were was hundred years ago. So it must not have been of much value. Otherwise, it would have been salvaged. The anchor would not have been left on it. Windless would have been taken off. Well, they must have considered it of, of little value. So sometime I think the point is, at what point does something become valuable? Enough for people to want to spend money on it. Well, r- right. I think that was that's the definition there is when, is when somebody cares to take a look at it. Uh, I mean, it, 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 it helps somebody with some questions if, if you want to know those answers. Uh, I mean, they, they've been able to determine some of the materials that the ship's were made out of, but say you defend, say you had a hundred of those wrecks and you know, and you've documented all hundred of them and you got the wood. So the question then becomes, what's the value of that information? So you've got that answer. Uh, Part of it's going to be some paragraphs. You figure it's a university. So they got a grant, which meant they got money that they didn't have to spend. It's shallow enough that they can go ahead and use that for their underwater archaeology course, for sure. But would you not do that? That's an advantageous for you, not to mention you write your book and you make a couple of bucks off of it as a professor. Mm-hmm. I, I can see why they're doing it here because you, you don't you don't think they got a grant to do that? A university is going to go spend their funds to go do something like this. Oh, no, no, I said it, it had government to funding. Grant. Yeah. The money had to come from somewhere. Right. And I can guarantee you that if you really want to look for shipwrecks, let the government start giving dive clubs or dive preserves the money, they'll find you shipwrecks. There you go. Exactly sure where I went off on that tangent from, but hey. <laughs> <laughs> well. Okay, it seems like I've I've pronounced. Was it supposed to be Flanders? Am, am I saying it right, Derek? Uh, and he says that he dove in another uh, wreck at Rye. That was a lime wreck. 
I mean, I, I'm, I am known for slaughtering words, so. Uh, did you check your inbox for a minute? I sent you something you might find interesting that we could talk about. Oh, certainly. Let me hit uh, in. Dun, dun, dun. Oh, this it's, it's, about- it's dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> well, because I... I, because every time I go in my inbox, I see Harbor Freight has another sale. Oh my goodness! Oh no! Yeah, it's their third Thursday going out of business, staying in business sale. Oh, clearing inventory, not going out of business. Clearing, clearing inventory. inventory. I like having Harbor Freight this close. Third parking lot sale of the week. So uh, the Word doc, is that what I should open? We were talking about the explosive earlier. I thought this would be a little more current that you might find interesting, unless you live there. I titled it, Let's Go Diving. I'm, I'm experiencing this very fast internet. That's why I have to go into work at least one day of the week. Yeah, here, here I'm going to, just so you, everybody can share the misery with me, I'm going to paste what I'm seeing into the uh, chat room. I tried to pick one of the pictures, but I'm not having any luck copying the picture so I can put it in there. Here, let me, I think I can put the picture in. Yeah, it did finally load for me. Uh, the third picture down is awesome, though, that you have to read the article to figure out what, what the heck that that was. Yeah, but, says, uh, so the title says, Let's Go Diving, Ammunition Dump, The Cleanup Could Take 10 Years, Village to Be Evacuated. Uh, says, uh, World War II bombs, grenade explosive lie dormant in the bottom of the Swiss Lake under the Alps are still causing headaches for Swiss authorities. Added to that, the 170 residents of the Swiss village of uh, Mythos, south of Bern, are facing forced removal so authorities can clean up crumbling ammunition dump from World War II. The deepest is that's now crumbling was excavated out of the side of a mountain during World War II. It's no longer safe, uh, but I still packed with tons of explosives left over from the war. Authorities have said it could be take 10 years or more to clean up and safely dispose of the explosives stored in the magazines. Let's see if I can. Yeah, put another photo in the chat room. says residents of sleepy Swiss village strangers to the day by the ammunition magazine. In 1947, estimated 7,000 tons of explosives were stored to dump exploded inside the depot built into the mountain. This explosion, nine people died, and the village sustained substantial damage. Now, did you see the that, picture that, that goes the with that? That oh, third yeah, picture? I'm going to put that one. That, That's freaking that awesome. That yeah, that is uh 
Wow. So in that photo, which you're going to have to look in the chat room people to see this one, uh, it's like somebody did a main excavation product. And this is not like a little quarry. It's like a that moved. That mountain got blown out. You can see where the village is. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, you look at that. That is uh, ammunition dump of the scene of the tragedy. 7,000 tons of explosives blew up. Following the explosion, parts of the depot were rebuilt, and since then, residents of, uh, have believed they were safe. Carolyn Bowren, a spokesman for the Federal Department of Defense, Civil Protection, and Sport. Civil Protection and Sport. That sounds kind of like the Hunger Games. Uh, she, she said that people believed it was all safe when the Swiss Army had used the depot for pharmaceutical storage. <laughs> well, nitroglycerin—that's a uh, a pharmaceutical, isn't it? It's a chemical, yeah. And, Come on, yeah. In, in 2018, a risk assessment was authorized, and everyone was shocked to find that the depot was much more dangerous state than everyone realized. Those undertaking the assessment estimated the magazine still contained some 3,500 tons of ammunition explosives. Bowren said the risk assessment recommended all ammunition explosives be wholly cleared from the depot. The evaluation also suggested that residents be removed from the village and the risk of explosion during the cleanup is very high. Do the amount of work required to uplift, relocate the entire community work on the cleanup will not start in 2031. Bowren explained that the interview with CNN that there was a midred of the major, why can't I say that word? Uh, a lot of details that still needed to be finalized. The government had plans to purchase all those property in the village and assist residents in finding new places to live. She went on to say plans have been authorized uh, this early so residents have time to formulate their future strategies. The government is working hard, or is working hand in glove with the community and survey been conducted to find out <coughs> what it is they desire. I've got a solution for them. What you do is you, you you send everybody to a one-week trip someplace else, and then you oh, nuke no. the mountain. Just, just <laughs> nuke it. Just, you know, we've seen that. You know, Bikini, uh, Bikini Atoll-type style, underground testing. Take it out. Or one of those just, daisy, daisy cutters. Yeah, just put a one of those 6,000-pound uh, bombs in there. That should ignite it if it's going to ignite. Yeah. The reason I like that part, because I'm watching these guys toss these grenades overboard. Can you imagine being able to go through there and pick this kind of crap up? That'd be so freaking awesome. Yeah. Ammunition. Mine shaft of munition. Working on clearing those explosives will not affect the residents, not only affect the residents, but also those living in the surrounding towns. Road and rail communication links need to be improved so that residents surrounding villages are not cut off and businesses can continue as usual for the region. Swiss television reported the press conference held by Defense Minister Viola Amard. She said the estimated cost to clean the depot would run in excess of 1 billion Swiss francs, which looks to be about 1.03 billion U.S. dollars. Officials said the explosives are buried in unstable rock environment it would have to be removed a layer at a time. Who is the guy who's unfortunately in there a layer at a time? Is is like that billion dollars, 900000 for the guy who's got to pick it up? 
or is this what you do? Is this uh, uh, how you do with the prisons? Is it you, you kind of make it a little sport? You know, well, you could do it even better than that, though. You know, you make it an incentive, and you say, "Hey, if you can do this and bring out so many pounds, we'll pay you this." And yeah, you can couch, yeah, you know. I think so. You get, you get everybody GoPros. Well, you put GoPros on everybody's heads, it's and then Wi-Fi. you uh, Wi-Fi. Yeah, you, you live stream it, and then you have this whole gambling thing going on. At what point will it go? Yeah, who, who's got an odds? You know, you got everybody's got a favorite. Once the removal starts, the authorities believe it'll be simply too dangerous to move the explosive. They may decide to bury them and leave them in situ. You could bury them now. Now, just yeah, that that yeah, it's cost you a billion now. It cost you ten billion uh, a few years from now. Mechanic acts okay. So that I think that's the end of that one. <laughs> wow. Can you so imagine guy, diving in that area? And coming across this stuff, it's in wow. the lake. I mean, when I'm out yeah, there searching guy, for Nazi gold in, in Switzerland, I come across that. That's my kind of luck. Yeah. <laughs> a chest I open up and goes boom, doesn't have gold bricks on it. No. I see a manganate. That's what it's fell up for me. But uh, Wow. That's a, that, I like that. Thank you. That was a good article. Have one for next week for you too on some new submarines they found. Excellent. Well, that does it for scuba in the news. And, and Karen says chemically medical nitroglycerin is exactly the same as explosive kind, just a tiny amount in the pills. Back when I was a kid, you could it, you'd make what you call uh, soup at uh, poor man's nitro. That's what uh, safe crackers used to use for uh, blowing safes. Little unstable, uh-huh. but it, it works. I mean, you get the formula; it's crude. You just gotta be a little careful, but it does work. Uh, yeah. From experience, now that will get you on about twenty. About twenty. Oh, 20 are you kidding naughty me? List. What I used to do as a kid, I would. <laughs> we used, you know, we're, you're talking about this. We used to go to the uh, ranges and pick up ordnance that was non-exploded take it apart, and then we'd sell it. We'd, we'd trade it to the kids. <laughs> and it's like, but it was not a big deal back then. It really wasn't because nobody was going to take yeah. that up and blow up a school. Oh, I mean, the kids I used to take their, their, their pickup trucks with the shotguns in the back and go hunting after school. Yeah, it, used to bring them. They used to have gun clubs at the school. There's photos in the yearbooks. Of everybody, you know, they would, they would, yeah. yeah well, the key just, item, it, it's not having that. It's the expectations of the people. They weren't brought up the same freaking way. Oh, yeah. That's could you opinion. imagine, what would, you know, I can remember as a kid, we were not allowed to make a gun sign with our hands and point it at anybody. That's how serious they were about gun safety. You never pointed anything gun or fake gun in somebody's direction, which I used to get mad because we had cap guns and I couldn't quite understand. Cause it's like, <laughs> we, we used to have BB gun wars. Come on. Now. You're, well, you're, you're, you're no, very, there, tame. There's, there's, very there's tame. One, 
there's what was allowed. And I'm, when I say that, that was like seven and eight. When when we were teenagers and outside everybody's field of view, that was a whole nother, another thing. It's like paintball stuff now. Oh, yeah. Seriously, though, once you get to the part where you're physically using the real weapons, it is very hard to play cowboy and Indians again. Oh, yeah. You just yeah, can't do it. have changed over the years. Yes, I do have a safety story for you tonight. Oh, okay. Uh, did, uh, before we do that, do we ha- know of anybody doing any diving? We had uh, uh, John, who congratulations for him for buying that business that he's got now. I don't know if that's a congratulations or a, war- a warning. Every time somebody at a dive club uh, owns a business, we never see him again. I think John is going to be the exception to that. Okay. Uh, but yeah, he, he, he shot some Facebook photos and showed him out in the water, social distancing with his family. And uh, there have been some uh, diving going on at Lake 16. Yep. Lake 16 had uh, some divers. And it does appear that what the guy thought was an upside down boat is the uh, platform let loose on two yeah, sides. That, yeah, that makes sense. And the river sure looked interesting this week. Not quite wetsuit weather, though. And since i got to have two people for dry suit, I haven't gotten in. But if I had a good wetsuit, visibility was at least three feet. Oh, really? Wow. I was out in Merrimont the other day, too, and visibility wasn't too bad there, either. I well, kept I going, was at- I kept saying, you can't go. You can't go. <laughs> I was, uh, I guess it was last night. Was it last night? Tuesday. Uh, these days are just running together. Uh, I got to Tiscornia Beach, north of the pier. And I know you've been sharing the photos showing where the beach is, but that is unbelievable how much sand is gone. Oh, big time. I was out there again today, and uh, one of the things I'd like to do this summer is do a uh, I don't know what do you call it. Uh, um, what do you call it when you say, "Hey, everybody, come on out here and let's do something." Not oh, a swarm. Uh, <laughs> uh, oh, come on. We, we 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 do we have anybody under fifty in the chat room who could tell us? <laughs> <laughs> I've seen I, them in I, stores. Meet up. Uh, yeah, but bottom line is, mob. there you go. Flash, there you go. <laughs> I, just go out to the beach. Stake out a one meter square and take a plastic bag and collect all the plastic in it because oh. you cannot believe how much plastic is on the beach. Every freaking square inch has something in it. Yeah. Well, and you want to know with this, this COVID 19 going on, you know, we're walking the roads by my house and I'm, I'm rural. I mean, there is, there is a road where people are probably heading from, one town to another, but it's not normal where you'll have that level of uh, activity. Uh, but there are gloves, medical waste all over the frickin' place. Go to the, go just drive through. I use the, to pick up medication. I go to the big window with my gloves on and stuff. People are leaving masks and gloves in the shopping carts. Right. 
It's would like you, you slobs. I don't understand that. A bit. No, it just it just aggravates me. Yeah. Well, you said you had a uh, dive safety story. Yes. Uh, title of this is going to be "Skipping the Pre-Dive Check Proved Deadly." A forgotten dry suit hose vacuum packed a rebreather diver. So the reported story is. The diver is an experienced, very experienced, open and closed circuit diver with hundreds and hundreds of hours underwater in diverse types of diving conditions. He boarded, boarded the dive boat with five other highly experienced divers. His dive partner was also using a rebreather, but the two divers had planned to separate once they, empty, they entered the water. The diver told his partner he did not want to spend much time at the surface before he descended, so the only equipment check conducted was a quick bubble check on the initial descent. After the bubble check, both divers continued to descend, but on their own. Dive partner said he last saw his diver below him at 90 to 100 feet, going down fast. He said this occurred at the beginning of the dive. The partner said that it appeared that the diver wasn't laying on the bottom looking for something. The dive partner stated he had no idea what the diver that the diver was probably already unconscious on the bottom. One of the other divers that entered after the first diver saw him during any portion of the dive. When the diver did not surface his plan, the group became worried, began sending their divers to look for him. Captain of the boat also notified the Coast Guard, and lifeguard divers were dispatched to assist in the search. After a six-hour search, the diver was located at a depth of 92 feet at the same location where he had descended. Diver was brought to the surface and pronounced dead. Diving lifeguards that found the diver said he was lying on his back with a rebreather mouthpiece not in his mouth. The mouthpiece was closed. They also noted that the diver did not have a low-pressure hose connected to the dry suit inflation valve, nor was the BCD valve inflator connected. This was important because that was also his source of alternate air from his other regulator. They said the diver appeared vacuum-packed in the dry suit. The diver's bailout regulator was no longer attached to his BCD harness, and it appeared he had removed the regulator to use it. The regulator, however, had an inline on-off valve that was still in the off position. Investigation revealed that the diver placed the on-off valve above the second stage to prevent the second stage from free-flowing. When tested, the on-off valve was hard to open, especially with gloves, but worked. The diver had plenty of bailout gas left in the cylinder. None of the gas had appeared to have been used. Equipment testing revealed that the diver was using 27 pounds of additional weight on his rebreather rig. This was in addition to the negative buoyancy created by his bailout system and an underwater camera equipment. The combined weight would have acted like an anchor if the diver entered the water without low-pressure hose attached to his dry suit or BCD inflator. Examination and testing of the rebreather showed that the unit worked as intended, but did not provide any direct answers as why the diver went off his working rebreather loop and closed the loop mouthpiece. This decision might have been made because the volume of gas contained in the loop felt insufficient 
And the diver had some other equipment issue, such as tight dry suit, or had some type of medical emergency. It's closed, however, the diver would have quickly needed an alternate air source to survive underwater. The diver had two separate choices. The regulator attached to the bailout bottle and the regulator integrated into his BCD inflator. As mentioned before, the problem was no low-pressure hose was attached to the BCD inflator regulator, and the on-off valve would have been hard to open in an emergency. Autopsy showed the diver had water in both his lungs and stomach, consistent with drowning. If the diver took a breath off either, either regulator during the emergency, the diver would have only gotten cold salt water. When combined with the added weight and the no way of adding air to his BCD or dry suit, driver sank directly to the bottom and drowned. One comment was, checklists have saved countless lives in aviation, medicine, and rebreather diving. When diving with rebreathers, skipping the pre-dive check is akin to Russian roulette. It's so important not to miss a step. You know, how often have we gone down with either the inflator or not the BC hooked up? I've oh, done yeah. one or the other, but not both. And no. again, duh, on my part. Yep. A buddy check would have caught that. I can't believe they didn't catch it before they got out of the boat. Those hoses would have been hanging around. You would think somebody would have noticed. It's scary, though. Somebody with that much experience. But again, if you got used to doing things like that and lived, well, I'll fix it in the water. Yeah. Well, I was, uh, uh, I, I know somebody this, this last week who uh, hurt themselves uh, taking apart or putting together a piece of equipment. And one of the lines he said, and he didn't know if it was true or not, but he always heard that uh, helicopter accidents it it's rare that it's the the rookie pilots they're the safest because they follow all the checklists and they're real safe. It was the the experienced helicopter pilots were the ones that had the fatalities. Oh, when you're first starting out, man, you do everything by the book because you don't know anything different. You learn yeah. bad habits later when you get away with doing well. I don't need this part. Yeah, it worked last time. I didn't die. Yeah. I can fix it in the air. I fix it in I'll the air. Go off the side of the road and fix your tire. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, helicopters can land anywhere. You just plop them right here. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. In uh, in the chat room, I uh, I threw a couple photos out from Tuesday night. It was beautiful out there. It was. I'm sure the night had a very nice sunset too. Well, it did, and that's the thing is, these the camera does such a good job with low light, you could barely see when we went out there, and this looks like it's 4 in the afternoon. Oh. This is like 8.30 p.m., I think, when we, we took those photos. Well, you have anything you want to plug? I think we're getting towards the end of it. Oh, I just hope everybody out there is doing social distancing and uh, don't do anything stupid. And we'd like to have you here in six months telling us about what you've been diving. Yeah. And that's what I'd like to be doing. Let me see if I can get 
convince this computer to show me what I want to see. Ah, here we go. Are you ready? Oh. Okay, this one, uh, with, with schools being out, it, it might not be too pertinent, but we'll see. The day's lessons in Mr. Thomas's kindergarten class was numbers. He wrote one on the board. He says, who knows what number this is, he said. Several hands went up. Michael, he says, uh, that's a one, Michael replied. Very good. Who knows what comes after one? A few hands went up. Margaret. Margaret replied with two. Very good. And what comes after two? Only a couple hands went up. Yvonne. Three, Yvonne replied. Very good, said Mr. Thomas. Now, what comes after three? He con- She continued. Only Pat's hand was raised. Uh, Pat, four comes after three, she said enthusiastically. Very good. Pat continued. After that comes five, six, and seven. That's right. Very good, Pat. After that, eight, nine, ten. Impressive said Mr. Thomas. Where did you learn your numbers? My father taught me, Pat answered. Well, you're very caring and attentive father, Mr. Thomas said. Yes, he's the best, was Pat's reply. Did he teach you what comes after 10? Oh, yes, Pat said. Queen, Jack, King, and Ace. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm I'm sure that this week, uh, these last few weeks, there's a lot of kids learning how to count above ten. <laughs> I like that one. That was good. So until next time, go out there and get wet and stay safe. Doubly so nowadays. Craig stayed the whole time. Oh.